0: The next day the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who is lame, We must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them, because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over forty years old. This is the word of the Lord. We have Pastor uh, Gary Ruzma speaking with us today, so I'll just read a short expert uh, excerpt, uh, an intro that I found on um, his missions field website which is uh, Gary is an ordained minister in the Christian Reformed Church, currently serving as chaplain in the Port of Vancouver with the CRC Ministry to Seafarers and in partnership with Anglican Mission to Seafarers. This ministry involves visiting cargo ships in port and serving in the ministry centers in Vancouver and at Roberts Bank. So with that, give a warm welcome to Pastor Gary Ruzma.
1: Good morning, I think it's still morning, just. Um, it's nice to be here with you, and nice to be here with you in person this time. So, uh, And it's good to be back, so thanks again for the invitation. Um, I did bring a few uh, before we get into the text. Um, as uh, was mentioned, I work with the Ministry to Seafarers. There are a number of organizations that do this, and we kind of work in partnership very much. And I brought a few pictures along. Um, if you could put up the first slide. Um and, and this is what we do is we, we work with international seafarers. So those ships that you see out in English Bay and in the inner harbor, and we, we meet them mostly when they come into the berth to do their discharging or their loading with containers or grain or coal or potash or whatever it is that they're coming through for. Um, and, but we also welcome them into our centers. So this is just a couple of days ago. There were some guys uh, come in. These, are, I think, are mainly Filipino um, and this is a bunch of guys. Another thing we've been doing lately is we've been uh, helping seafarers get vaccinated. So, because a lot of them don't have opportunity, more and more of the new ones that are signing on are, are already vaccinated. It's pretty much a requirement now. But a lot of the guys who have still been on for many months, they're, they're unvaccinated. So, we're still bringing out regularly groups of seafarers. Either they come, some of the uh, vaccination uh, clinics come on board ships but otherwise we'll bring them. So these are one of the groups I brought recently to the vaccination clinic down at uh, Italian Cultura's Cultural Center. They're getting to know me down there and because uh, I bring groups through all the time. And uh, so it's been a great way of serving seafarers uh, during this time of the pandemic. And uh, lately, uh, things have been starting to open up a little bit for a while there. It was really rough early on <laughs> in the uh, pandemic. And and I wouldn't. Uh, we couldn't even. We could just meet at the top of the gangway usually, and wouldn't go into ships. Now we're starting to. And this is uh, last week. I was on this ship uh, with uh, some Indonesian seafarers. I, we used to, I used to live in Indonesia and Malaysia for many years, and and so speak the language. So it was great to be able. This is the captain across from me and the chief mate. And um, I ended up actually after this is lunch on board the ship. But that last Sunday, I actually brought uh, three of them were Christians. And I brought them out to attend a church service. And one guy said, this is the first time I've been in church in three years. Three years. Because he, uh, of course, when he's home, it's mostly online. And most of the time, he's on ships. And he never gets a chance to go to church. So he was just thrilled to be able to go again. So that's a a little bit of what we're doing um, on these ships. But one of the things... um, because as I mentioned, I was able to bring these guys out. They were allowed to go ashore. and Canada allows seafarers to come ashore if they're fully vaccinated. However, most of the ships are not allowing seafarers still to go ashore. most of the companies. And this uh, I was on a ship just this week, earlier in this week uh, with and I had a, sat down and I a chat with a Ukrainian uh, and a Bulgarian seafarer, two of them. And and they just—they were both officers on board, and they just, especially the one, the third mate, just started sharing with me. And he said, he sat down, and he did not want to let me go, literally. And he said, you can't believe how difficult it is to be locked on the ship. Basically, we can't get off the ship for months. He said, it is prison. And I said, but yeah, I said, "And, and I know, and shipping companies are making money like hand over fist right now. It's especially the container shipping companies. And they've had a good year. They've earned more for most shipping companies, especially the container companies, in 2021 than they did in the previous 10 years. It's been just one of those real feast years for them. And they gave out bonuses to their employees, which we were thrilled to hear about. But I said to the guy, so did you get a bonus? He said, yeah, I got a bon- we got bonuses. He said, I'd give up the whole bonus just to be able to go ashore. If I could just go ashore. So it's been a really difficult time for seafarers, and part of what we do is just try to support them uh, in, in that, in their context and what they're going through. Uh, keep them in your prayers. And uh, yeah, it's it's a it's a challenging but very, very worthwhile ministry. because I'm thrilled to be involved. But today we're gonna bring the word. And at times I do get to preach on board. I get to bring do Bible studies on board ships, which is always a thrill. Haven't done it as much during COVID of course, but uh, it is a, a great opportunity, and it's a thrill to be able to bring God's Word to you today. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father in heaven, as we prepare to explore your Word and to study it, guide us by the presence of that same Spirit who filled Peter in this text, enabled him to boldly bear witness for you our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. A few years ago, we had uh, friends over, or, or I think we were at their place this time, uh, that's right, for dinner, uh, a couple, and we sat down, my wife and I, with this couple. Now, they're not Christians, neither one, and, uh, but we, we were chatting, and, in, and through our conversation, uh, eventually, we, we got to matters of God and faith and Humanity and just these, these kinds of situations, the questions that come up. And, and we spoke frankly. And at one point, I still recall the, the, the woman, the wife in, in the uh, conversation. And we were talking about people and, and the challenges and, and struggles that people have and, and illness and mental illness and, and all the addictions and all that kind of stuff. And, and she said, I believe people do not change. People cannot change. The way they're born is the way they're going to be for the rest of their life. Sometimes people can make sort of a show of a of changing a little bit and doing, you know, being transformed. But DNA always wins the day. The way you were born is the way you end up. No real change. I was struck by that, and I was reminded by that when I was reading through this, especially you. I think last week you covered chapter three, this healing of this man. Did you notice? Lame from birth. It's the way he was born. And, of course, you went through that, and I was glad you read that text. I was going to refer to it anyway, where it talks about how he calls uh, through that, the healing, and then there's this opportunity to bear witness to Jesus Christ for what's just happened, and he calls the people to repent, uh, to believe, and that lovely phrase, times of refreshing. Times of refreshing from the Lord will come because Jesus is this promised Messiah, the chosen one the, that all the prophets have pointed to, that's who the, the, this Jesus is. So repent and believe in him. Well, chapter four then is the beginning to many in many ways, to the opposition that starts to come to this message, to this good news. And notice that it is the opposition from the rulers, the elders the high priests, the Sadducees. Now it's interesting because in the Gospels, if you remember, the primary opponents to Jesus throughout most of the Gospels are the Pharisees it, until the very end. And then at the end, the Sadducees get more involved and they're involved in that of course the trial of Jesus. But through most of the, uh, uh, the Gospels, it is the Gospel accounts, it's the Pharisees. But by the time you get to the book of Acts, it's primarily the Sadducees. And they're the ones here who begin to challenge or, and really be offended by, challenge these apostles and be offended by their message. Why? Well, you have to remember the Sadducees were the ruling elite. They weren't the biggest. There were many more Pharisees. But the Sadducees were the ones who held the reins of power. The high priests were primarily from the Sadducees. They were the ones who ruled. They were the ones who were largely in collaboration with the Roman rulers in order to keep the status quo, to keep the peace. But even more importantly, it was them who, they weren't looking for a Messiah, for a personal Messiah, because they believed the messianic realm had already been initiated, had already come, and it was being brought into, into place, but it had begun with the, in the 2nd century B.C. with the, the Maccabean revolt against the, the Greeks. It had already begun. So there's no personal Messiah coming. Jesus? Messiah? And much less, they did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. They were literalists in their reading of Torah, the Old Testament. The, the Old Testament law or the teaching of the Old Testament. They didn't believe in, in a resurrection. And here, if you look read through that carefully, you see over and over again, it's he rose from the dead. And in him is the resurrection of the dead. Not only did Jesus rise, but we all will rise. And so they see these apostles in their preaching as subversive, threatening maybe even the peace with Rome, but also heretics, false teaching. Notice here the contrast. The people, the laos, the laity, that's the word in Greek, the laos, the people, largely praising God. And it's primarily, at this point, the elders and the leaders, the rulers, who are opposed to what's happening. Now, that will change as Acts goes on, but right now, it's primar- the, the rulers are the ones who are offended. The people are thrilled by what they've seen. So, we come to this trial. They bring them, and they, they arrest, and they imprison them overnight, and then they bring them to this, this trial setting before the Sanhedrin, the... the gathering of all the leaders, which would include scribes and priests and and, uh, Pharisees and Sadducees and all of the group. Um, Notice that Annas and Caiaphas are there. Do you remember Annas and Caiaphas? Where else were they? They were involved in the trial of Jesus, not that long before this, just probably weeks before this. And so you, you get this sense that here's a we're, we're seeing it happen all over again, right? And the, the apostles must have been wondering, okay, this didn't go so well last time. What's going to happen this time? But of course, Jesus had warned them of what was coming, right? Already back in the Gospels. Now, am I supposed to click this or are you? Let's see what happens. Okay, do you have a, uh, the text, Luke, Luke? chapter 21. I think I did send that, but maybe not. I can read it too. Luke chapter 21, verses 12 and following. Jesus' words, but before all this, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues. This is Jesus warning His disciples They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison and you will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. And so you will bear testimony to me. Listen to this. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves, for I will give you the words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. Oh yeah, keep on going. Oh no, there's more than that. Okay. None of you, I will give you the words, says Jesus. Jesus had warned them ahead of time. And what's interesting to note in this context, I don't know if you caught that, Peter, when he's there asked, how did you do this? And he said, if we are on trial now for an act of kindness, For an act of kindness, wouldn't it be great if the church always and only was on trial for acts of kindness? (laughs) Lamentably, tragically, that hasn't always been the case through church history. But I don't want to be too cynical because there have been many acts of kindness done too but there have been other acts that haven't been so noble. He said, we're on trial for an act of kindness, for doing something good, and here we are, arrested, imprisoned, and on trial. But then the question comes up, who's really on trial here? it, It is the apostles, they're the ones brought before the Sanhedrin, but before very long, The tables are almost completely turned. Did you notice that? The accused ones, Peter and John particularly, very quickly become the accusers. Did you catch that? This Jesus, you killed him, but God raised him again. And it's as if they move from being on the defense to the prosecuting attorney it's the apostles who almost bring the the rest of the leaders into trial and they begin to question them you killed him god raised him in fact that phrase comes up uh, this is the third time already back in chapter 2 Peter, that first sermon on the day of Pentecost, you killed him, God raised him. Back in chapter three, when he's addressing the people, he says the same thing. And now, for a third time, he accuses the elders, you killed Jesus. God raised him again. And you get this sense in which the the leaders who are supposedly the ones Doing the trying of the the apostles. They're the, they're the prosecutors, but they're perplexed and astonished. They don't know what to do with these guys. They're the ones asking questions and then, but they're baffled. How do we deal with these guys? These are unschooled laymen. These are commoners. And the, the, the term used, the terms used don't really mean that they were illiterate necessarily, but that they hadn't to put it in uh, contemporary terms, they hadn't gone to seminary. (laughs) They they hadn't gone to rabbinical school and been trained. How is it that they speak like this? And they're perplexed over and over again in the text, if you look carefully at it, what are we going to do with these guys? What can we do? Because it's undeniable what's happened. And that also comes up over and over again. Read the text carefully. It's it's for all to see. We can't deny it. It's plain as day. Here is the man who has been healed, standing right before them. What do you do with that? And so they're, they're kind of perplexed. They don't know what to do with them. But what's highlighted here is this incredibly bold witness by the apostles. In fact, the the term that's used uh, in, in, I think, the NIV, it says courage or courageous, and in, in the ESV it says their boldness. Literally what that term means is freedom of speech in terms of unreserved They just said it like it is. You can imagine. I mean, you're brought before the judges, and you can imagine people kind of shaking knees and trembling, and uh, how do do I speak? But there's none of that. They're speaking boldly. Why? Well, as verse 8 tells us, filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, some people have questioned that, and we could spend a little bit more time, but we, we don't really have the time this morning. What, what does that mean? Because hadn't they been filled with the Spirit back in chapter 2 already, and what's going on? But what, what's likely meant here is, in the same way Jesus was, and He promised them, I will be with you, I mean, and, and, and there's this sort of a special anointing for this particular situation to be able to say it like it is with out reserve, without reserve, full, boldly, freely speaking what needed to be said. And that special anointing of God's Spirit on them. And then they say, interestingly, and then they recognize that they had been with Jesus. They'd been with Jesus. Jesus. Being with Jesus changes people. And just like Jesus, back in John, again, I don't know if you have this uh, verse up, John 7, John 7, verse 15. As far as Jesus was, there it is. The Jews were amazed when Jesus was teaching and asked, How did this man get such learning without having been taught? Jesus had the same dynamic. Jesus was one who could speak boldly, speak the truth with authority, we're told over and over again in the Gospels. And here again, now the apostles are doing the same thing as Jesus. Why? Because they've been with Jesus. Friends, have you been with Jesus? Because that's the key a bold witness to true witness lived in in this in this gospel in these gospel accounts lived with jesus so that his spirit can fill us and we can be those kinds of witnesses and they of course what did they bear witness to this jesus this one verse 11 is literally what it says this one this Jesus and no other he's the stone and that's a reference to Psalm 118 which was a messianic psalm looking forward to the one that was coming the true stone the true pinnacle of all there is in what God's in God's plan for this world Jesus is it this one is the God's chosen stone and then he goes on to say of course with those familiar if you go to verse 12 salvation is found in no one else now this is the kind of uh, uh of verse that we could have a whole sermon just on this verse because it's so vital so important this is one of those verses when you're memorizing if you're in school or something or you're in your Sunday school class and they have you memorize verses this is one of the ones you always learn okay <laughs> if you've been trained in that way because it's such a vital verse and it's so important and it's hotly debated too because it sounds so exclusive and it's not very popular in a pluralistic society like Canada or the West these days. Because it's, there's no, no other way. It's not popular. Now, it's important to notice here he uses the term salvation. Salvation is the noun form. He used the, same, the verb form of the same word back in verse 9 when he talks about this man stands before you healed. And it's the same thing. That word can mean either, in Greek, healing, physical healing, or transformation, <laughs> saved in terms of from God's wrath, redeemed. And, of course, here it has that broader meaning it's more than just a physical healing although that's a key part of it but it's broader than that it's all that salvation means for god's people and he uses a lot of terms in this chapter for healing and 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 it's it's again it's broader than just the healing of the lame man this is salvation and there is salvation in no other name now uh, some have tried to, to kind of modify this again and, and said, well, Jesus didn't act, or, the apostles didn't actually mean that there's, you know, there's no other way to God. There are lots of ways to God. This is the liberal kind of uh, line here. It's just what they're doing is sort of like we're in the Olympics now. I don't know if you're watching the Winter Olympics. But in the Winter Olympics, well, we like the Winter Olympics. Right? And especially hockey. I mean that's that's our game, right? And and it's almost like the the, the liberals will say, it's almost like uh, saying, Well, there's no other hockey team but Canada. They we're really the only team. There's no no other real team. And, and they say that's what sort of the apostles are saying here. Jesus is it. Well, they don't really mean that there's no other, but you know, they're kind of hyperbole. It's like, ah, oh, yeah, there's nobody like Jesus. Rah, rah, rah. But that's not what's going on here. This is much more emphatic than that. This is literally saying there is no other way but Jesus. Like it or not. And it's not popular. But it's Jesus, friends. This Jesus. Well, what's the outcome of all that happens here then to these apostles and this trial and all of that? Just three things I want to highlight here. First, um, did you notice that right after they're arrested, in verse 4, They were arrested, they're thrown into prison until the next day, but many who heard the message believed. But many who heard the message believed, and their numbers jumped to 5,000. Many who heard, literally it says, many who heard the word, logos, believed. In other words, even arresting the, the apostles couldn't stop the power of God's word of the message of the good news. there's this And there's this ongoing witness, right, that keeps going. The apostles even say it. They tell them, they warn them, they threaten them. You're not to speak anymore in this word. You're not to teach in this, of this, uh, this message. You're not to teach anymore of the people. And they say, how can we but speak of what we've seen and heard? The witness must go on. And, and furthermore, God is glorified through all of this. God is praised. Verse 21, uh, the, the, uh, I want to do an, a literal translation from the Greek. Because verse 21 literally says this. And when they had further threatened them, that is, the, the leaders had threatened the apostles. And when they had further threatened them, they released them finding no way to punish them because of the people they had no way to punish them because of the people for all were glorifying god for what had happened and it's that word doxa doxology praising glorifying god it's the hebrew word is kavod that's where it comes from it's giving glory to god That's the result, even of their witness, even of their arrest and trial. God is glorified. But secondly, did you notice here too that though the rulers threaten and rebuke the apostles, they never refute their core teaching. They never refute that Jesus rose from the dead because they can't. It's almost like, just as it was clearly obvious that this lame man had been healed, so it's clearly obvious that Jesus rose. And that cannot be denied. They couldn't deny it. Because if they could have, they would have. So they're only ordered to not teach anymore. But the healing and the resurrection are undeniable facts. But finally, Jesus heals. He heals. He changes. He transforms lives. Our friend said, He can't change people. People can't be changed. They can't change. But Jesus can change people. And that's the real hope of this text. I read just recently a book by uh, two authors. It's a father and son in dialogue. I don't know. Some of you may have read it. It's entitled, Why I Left, Why I Stayed. And it's a dialogue between some of you may know the uh, evangelist Tony Campolo. He's quite elderly now, but he was at Missions Fest a number of years ago, just quite a few years ago, I remember. Tony Campolo, he's very funny and he's a good evangelist. His son, Bart Campolo, was also an active evangelist, very involved in social work and working with the underprivileged in the inner cities, similar to, say, the downtown East Side or places like that very involved until he was about Well, he was struggling i guess having a crisis of faith until he was about 50 or so he completely gave up his faith and he became a secular humanist atheist secular humanist and he's now a secular humanist chaplain at usc down in california a chaplain but a secular humanist and so this book is the dialogue between tony the father who is still Uh, a fervent christian evangelist and his son who is an evangelist for secular humanism why i left for bart why i stayed for tony well at one point in this book tony is talking and he's saying how how bart lost his hope that people could change I'm going to sort of read through this, because, and I'm not going to read the whole thing. I paraphrase it a little bit, and then I'll be quoting a little bit. But basically, he explains, Tony Campolo explains that as his son Bart was serving so many people who were living self-defeating lifestyles, violence, addiction, uh, dysfunction, fa- family dysfunction, all kinds of issues happening, he began to feel that some people are simply incapable of being saved or transformed in any meaningful way. And then he ties it in with the Russian existentialist philosopher Nikolai Berdyaev, where where Berdyaev claims that when someone stops believing in the capacity of other people to grow and change and engage in noble, worthwhile pursuits, when they lose that hope, that individual eventually loses faith in God. And he draws on Dostoevsky, the great Russian author, writer, to explain that to lose sight of the divine presence in even the lowliest person is the beginning of atheism. And the reverse is also true. To lose faith in God is to lose faith in people. Can people really change or be changed? I'll quote here. He writes, after reaching out, quoting, after reaching out to the seemingly hopeless men and women in his neighborhood and seeing almost no positive results from his labors of love, Bart gave up on saving such people and decided his mission was merely to comfort them in their affliction instead. When my son no longer believed that literally anyone and everyone has the possibilities for radical change, the seeds of doubt in his mind sprang up into full-grown agnosticism, close quote, and eventually atheism. Can people really change or be changed? Now, secular humanists would probably argue, oh, we believe in humanity. We believe really that people can, you know, we can, things can really happen if we work together. But the secular humanist human view of humanity is, is flat. It's shallow. Because really it's meaningless. All we are, I've heard people say this to me, we're just a bunch of chemicals that have come together by chance. And then we're just gonna be gone. DNA wins! (laughs) You can't change people! So you just comfort them. Now, I'll give you an example of where this holds out, I think. I'm not an expert on addictions and that, though I walk every day pretty much or ride bike through the downtown east side on my way to work. I watched a film. My wife and I watched a film uh, recently. Uh, It's a film about the overdose crisis, which we're all hearing about, and it's a huge crisis. And in the film, it 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 really focuses on the downtown east side of Vancouver. In that film, there was only one reference to rehabilitation. And it was one that didn't work out. Somebody went to rehab, two weeks later, they went out and used again and died. Everything else was focused on safe supply and harm reduction. You've heard those terms, I'm sure. Safe supply, harm reduction. Now, I'm not against harm reduction. I think that's important. But I also want to hang on to the hope of rehabilitation. But in a world, in a culture, in a society that has largely lost sight of God, the tendency is to lose hope in any meaningful rehabilitation, and to focus simply on comforting people, safe supply, harm reduction. I hope that you can catch what I'm saying there. People can, and I will say it this way, be changed. People can be healed. Now, I don't want to be trite in this in any way. I know it's a huge issue. And I know all of healing for all of our addictions, whatever your addiction may be, whether it's drugs and alcohol, whether it's sex and porn, whether it's money, whether it's whatever the case, power or whatever, we all struggle in some areas. But because Jesus is the great healer, friends, he can bring hope. He can change lives. And that's what this text really assures us of, the power of Jesus to change lives and then to give the hope. I mean, we, we all have struggles, and those struggles will continue. Jesus works in us by the power of His Spirit, but then there's that hope of the ultimate resurrection, the ultimate healing that's to come. And we can trust and hope with certainty in that. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for what you have done in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the power of healing and for the hope that that gives for all of us, that you change lives, that you change us, that you are changing us. And even though that doesn't always happen immediately, like in the, in the story of this layman, that often you work over time through our lives, yet you are bringing change, that you do work in our lives. Continue your work in each and every life here. Continue your work in this world. Give us that certain in real transformation, in real salvation because it's only in you, Lord Jesus. And we pray in your name. Amen.